Today's episode is brought to you by Kyle LaCroix and Sets Consulting. Sets Consulting is a personalized service for all tennis coaches looking to take the next step in their career path, improve their on-court teaching abilities and management skills, and navigate the many challenges that pop up on a coach's radar throughout their careers. Kyle is just one of 144 USPTA Master Professionals and has tested, certified, and mentored more than 1,400 teaching pros. He works with ATP and WTA tour coaches, academy coaches, and private club coaches, and is considered the gold standard in the coaching community. By signing up to work with Kyle and Sets Consulting, you're receiving Kyle's mentorship in perpetuity for the rest of your career. Sets Consulting offers personalized one-on-one career counseling, individualized lesson plan and programming templates, and much more. The program is valued at over $160,000 for the year, while you pay just pennies on that cost. If you take your coaching career seriously and want to improve at your craft, you need to at least check out what Sets can do for you by visiting www.setsconsult.com or reaching out through Instagram to at Sets underscore consulting. I've seen firsthand the impact Kyle can have on a coaching career as I've improved both on the court as a coach, but also as a professional in the coaching industry. So to all the coaches out there, click on the link in my show notes and take your first steps towards improving as a coach. Hey everyone, welcome to the 40th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Brian Calvis. Brian is the head coach of the University of North Carolina's women's tennis team, where his teams have won seven ITA national indoor championships, six ACC championships, and most recently the NCAA team championship this past May. He's coached 27 different players who have become All-Americans and has been named the ITA National Coach of the Year on three separate occasions. On today's episode, we discuss how his team broke through to win at this year's NCAA Team Championships, what it means to be an SAP player, and a fun drill he calls Grandma's House. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Brian, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate you having me. Uh, we're recording this about a month after you and your team won the NCAA team championships. And for the listeners out there that don't know, I mean, I don't have the exact stats, but your team has been one of the most dominant, one of the top teams for the last 10 years. You've been number one in the country in the rankings for many, many weeks. Uh, you've had multiple national indoor titles. You've won multiple ACC championships. And in my opinion, the ACC women's is the top conference in the country. And you've had dozens of All-Americans during that span. And yet, this past May is the first time that you won the Team NCAA Championships. And winning the big one or winning the big match is definitely a skill. Is there anything that you guys did differently this year that helped you kind of get over that hump? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. It's, um, it's, it's definitely been, you know, since really 2010, when we got to our first Final Four, it's been um, a progression of, of, of rankings where we've never fallen out of the top four. So we've, we've uh, been in the top four every ranking period, even weekly since 2010. And that's a very uncommon thing when you got the transfer portal and you got people leaving. And one of my most proudest moments is the fact that we've never had a player not graduate in our program. So the fact that everybody has come, everybody stayed. And for us, you know, we've, we've uh, in the last, I think the last four years, we've been the number one seed in the NCAA tournament. Uh, we've won four straight national indoor titles. Uh, 
And when you win the national title, you, you vault to the number one position. And it's hard when you win so many big time matches early in the season, it's hard to kind of, even if you take a loss here and there to be knocked out of that number one position. So the three previous years, one of them actually was, you know, the COVID year. Um, and we, you know, we were undefeated when COVID hit, but uh, we, it was, we've been number one seed in 2019, number one seed in 21, number one seed in 2022. And for us, we just felt like, you know, we were trying to defend something and um, we went into it, you know, kind of with a target on our back and we didn't handle it well. And when we faced adversity, we, we kind of succumbed to the pressure. And since we hadn't lost, we didn't really know how to handle it that, that well. This year, you know, we end up uh, winning, you know, national indoors again. We go through pretty much um, the whole regular season, go win the regular season ACC undefeated, which is really hard to do. As you said, it's the toughest conference in the nation. So you got so many difficult teams and to go undefeated in the ACC conference regular season is, is, is daunting and it's, it's a great accomplishment. And then we got to the uh, ACC tournament and we faced an NC State team, a little different NC State team, but a big different NC State team. They, you know, you know, they were when we played them the first time, they were without Diana Schneider, and and that's a a, a big difference. Obviously, they're good without her, but they're amazing with her. So uh, we played them in the AC tournament, and they had more fans than we did in in Cary, and we were not ready for the onslaught of the fans and their their intensity. They played, you know, so well. Diana played Fiona. Fiona was number one in the nation. Diana just came out off, you know, off a, a great um, tournament in Charleston. I think she beat the number 13 player in the world. And she just came out and just took it to Fiona and, and just kind of set the tone. And we, again, we didn't handle it well. So what we, we did differently in this NCAA tournament run was, and I give our team, our players, a lot of credit. Sophia Patel is our captain. She said, you know what, when we go into indoors, we go into it like this is our tournament. Not that we're cocky or confident, but we go into it it's like, hey, we've we've done well uh, in the past, and this is our tournament. Somebody's going to have to take it from us. So she said to our team, and uh, and the girls rallied around her, saying, you know what, this is our tournament. The NCAA is our tournament. You know, all right, we're number one seed. Okay, but you know what, we haven't won it, and uh, we've been protecting our ranking. It says let's go into it with a little air of confidence or cockiness, a little, you know, to the point where you know what, this is our tournament, and I think that that mentality I think was the, the initial part that was a big difference for us to kind of go into it and not, not fearing losing. In the past, we felt like we were going to let anybody down. And when the, the inevitable was when we were, you know, struggling in those matches, kind of like the NC state uh, match and ACC tournament, you know, when the inevitable was there, everybody kind of had this like sunken feelings like, you know what, this is not our year. Okay. And that has happened in the past in the NCAA tournament. So, Fast forward to the finals against NC State, Riley Tran is down a set, 5-1, 30-love. On next court, Annika you know, Yarlagata is down a set in 4-1. And Liz Biscotti is down 6-3 in the tiebreaker in the first set. And we'd already won two first sets. So we needed, we needed Scotty's you know, first set. And we also needed others to kind of set the tone. But then Riley ends up winning 14 points in a row wins the second set. Annika comes back and wins the second set. There was never this like feeling like, um, I'm down and out. Oh, whoa, me. Scotty comes back and wins her tiebreaker. 
all those little things play a huge part. And it's the mentality, I think, that our, our team had going into the tournament that was different. Even though we want players to not fear losing, I mean, that's just such a natural instinct to have. I, everyone who's ever played tennis or competed in another sport has has felt that fear. And then you get tense, your muscles get tight. In college coaching, you can talk to these players on the court and help them. So in the past, or in, I'm sure girls still felt some nerves in this tournament, what are some of the types of things you might tell a player if you can notice that that fear is creeping in or there is some tension creeping in? What might you say to a player to help them relax? That it's okay to miss. I mean, tennis is a, is a, is a game of errors, okay? So, you know, let's, let's make good errors and not bad errors. Bad errors are checkout errors. Bad errors are bad decision errors. Bad errors are you're changing your mind errors. And I know exactly when our player is not fully committed on a shot. They change their mind. Their eyes move, their head moves, you know, they don't swing out. Okay. We're an aggressive team. Uh, we know there's going to be errors, but we need, you know, uh, to understand our players is, Hey, if you set the point up really well and you're hitting a swinging volley and you're coming forward and you miss an overhead on top of the net, I'm going to be the first one to congratulate you. Okay. Because that's a good error. You know, if you're struggling, what I do is I try and tell my p- players to, all right, let's beat the first, t- first two opponents, the net and the alleys. Let's fold the alleys into the court. Let's fold the, the the net up, and let's be aggressive within those parameters. So, and then by that time, once they do that, it's like they're making a lot more balls. They're more confident. They can go close to the lines. They're not worried about missing. You know, again, we work on you know handling people's first and second strike. We've been the, the, the our motto this year was punch first, strike first, be aggressive, take it to them, and I think that's really been a good a good motto for us. It's like, uh, I don't know, I'm sure you don't, the Netflix show Cobra Kai. I think it's strike yeah. first. I think that's what they say, but I, I like that for you guys. So, you know, you mentioned you've got so many great players on your team. I mean, your number six could probably play two or three for a lot of top 25 teams. When you're recruiting these these amazing players, is there a non-tennis specific character trait that you find kind of links them all together, all these great players that have come through your program? Well, to me... You know, it's very simple. They have to have a good attitude and they have to want to work hard. Okay. That's, that's, that, those are things that are non-negotiable and they have to, that to me, my, my biggest attribute is they, they must enjoy tennis. They must have, have fun. Okay. Or just fun being out there. So uh, to me, having just a passion, you know, for doing what they're doing and being part of a team, those are things that, um, uh, you know, I think that our, our players, they love, they love coming to practice. They love working hard. They love being around each other. And it's our culture that I think separates, you know, us from, you know, a lot of different teams. And, um, you know, we have fun. We have fun at practice. We work hard at practice. So we don't practice, you know, probably longer than, you know, pretty much any other team. But I think we practice, you know, more intensely in the time that we have. I know how monotonous some training portions of the year can be maybe by the end of the fall or maybe in between matches in the spring when you've had the highs of the duels and, and whatever, it's natural. There, there are certain parts of the year where students might be less motivated than others. Is there anything you specifically do to keep that fun and to keep that joy in a practice when maybe the players are lacking a little bit? You know, we sprinkle in what we call fun competition days. Everything is kind of built around competing. So uh, when we feel that the, the team needs kind of a uh, kind of a mental break and enjoy it, so we, we break the team into two different teams. And we do some target competition. They love target competition, you know. So, you know, we set up these big targets, and Ty and I, 
Uh, we just you know, have them just go at each other. And what's really fun about it is you got teams, and if they hit a target, they get to stay in, and that's worth one point. They hit again, that's worth two points. They hit again in a row, that's three points. So it's you're just really kind of like you know they cheer for each other. It's it's very exciting, and we you know so we we do things that you know make it more fun, um, but competitive and focused and 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 purposeful at the same time. This might be a tricky question because every player is so different, but is there an, is there a tennis specific characteristic or quality, whether it's the movement or the serve or ground strokes or the tactics they use? Is there anything that links a lot of these great players you've had a lot of similarities on the court? We don't recruit the same type of, of, of athlete. We try and recruit the same type of person. And to me, we, we always talk about the person over the player. You know, we got tall players like Scotty and, we got short players like Fiona, you know, we got, so we got all different sizes of players and all different games. But we try and do is we try and get them to understand that if you're a, if you're a very consistent player and you love the baseline, we're going to force you to be comfortable, you know, transitioning forward. Okay. We're going to work on it. And if you're an, if you're an aggressive player that comes forward, we're going to get you to be more stingy from in, in the corners. Okay. And be stronger in the corners because in college tennis, the beautiful thing is, there's coaching all the time. And so you have to be willing to adjust, adjust and adapt your game because there's great coaches that are telling their players to do certain things. If you're, you know, so we do a lot of things. Tyler has been, uh, Tyler Thompson, my associate coach, has been great at, you know, adding more things to the player's toolbox, getting them use the drop shot, using them to chip. So to me, I think the, the common theme that you're asking is they have to be willing to be adaptable and be willing to grow their game. They don't have to be perfect. But they have to be the person that you know what is willing and wanting to be become a more complete player when you know when they leave Carolina. Like I said, you know you had six players that are ranked. A lot of times you've actually had all six singles players or close to that get in the NCAA tournament, which is remarkable. And yet you still have to place them at one, two, three, four, five, six. So, is there anything that you see, generally speaking, not just on this year's team, but? What kind of separates a really good number five from maybe you've had the number one player in the country or a top five player? What, what separates the good from the great? They have more weapons. Than, they have, the great players have more weapons, okay? And weapons, some of the weapons are things that, you know, we can't coach. And uh, that is speed. That is um, competitive desire. They, they, they hate, hate, hate to lose more than they enjoy winning those, those players that really just value every shot, every point. So um, the more weapons they have, it doesn't have to be a big serve. doesn't have to be a big forehand, but you know, just, you know, the tennis IQ is a huge weapon. So those, those players, the great players have uh, a multitude of weapons uh, more so than the good players and the good players that we have become great players. Like Annika Yarlagata has become a great player. You know, she played, she was a mainstay, six and seven for us for their first few years. And now she's a great player, one of the best players in the country, got to the All-American semifinals and was top, you know, 15 in the country, made the NCAA tournament and was, you know, a few games away, uh, a few points away from being an All-American against Leah Ma. And she'd become a great player because she's added more weapons to her game. She used to be a one, very one-dimensional uh, baseliner, very good backhand. Now her forehand's a weapon. You know, her serve plus one is a weapon. Can, she can tra- uh, transition better, you know, better than anybody in the country. You know, if she plays a player that you know she's going to have to come in, she can come in. She's got one of the best overheads in the country, which she didn't have when she came in. 
She uses the drop shot. She uses the chip. She does a lot of things now that have made her into more of a complete player. And that's why she's become a great player. Can you share what that process looks like? You know, a lot of players go, cool, I want to add a weapon to my game or I want to add weapons to my game and I want to level up. But I think a lot of people just don't know what that process looks like. And so they kind of spin their wheels and stay the same. Is it drilling in practice, practice matches, and then fall matches, then dual matches? Like, how do you help someone add things to their game? Because a lot of times when you add something, you're not great at it at first. And so when you use that or or how you go about that process, what does that look like for you guys? A lot of that has to occur when there's no pressure of competing. So for us, that typically happens in the summertime. Last summer, Annika was here all summer long and spent every single day in the weight room and on the tennis court. She had never done that before. And so for her, she was hitting with Ty and I pretty much every day. And we just, she, she had a, a repertoire of, of re- repetition and time on the court that really gave her the confidence. And then when she was in matches, she was able to, to do it and, and make good errors and know that, all right, this is what I did wrong and not have the fear, okay, of, of feeling, okay, I missed a ball on top of the net and that's a bad error. I should, I should not do that again. Okay, so let me not get to that winning position. Let me try and hit a winner from the baseline. She yeah. understands that what she did to get to that winning position was four or five great things. And re- in reality, she, now she realizes that she, if she misses it, she knows exactly what she did wrong and she's not going to make that mistake again. And she'll win the next nine points in a row in that same situation. And then some players that, you know what, they're, they're able to figure it out. Annika's kind of, we talk about testing the water. She's more of like, let me put my, my toes in and see how cold or hot it is. And then once she establishes the level, then she kind of jumps right in. Other players just jump right in and, and are able to fail and figure it out and, and survive. Okay. And it, it really, they can really thrive in that situation. So those players can can really get better and challenge themselves and maybe get a little worse to get a lot better during during the fall or during the spring and and that's that's a rarity but um, those those players are very special when that can happen. At the end of the blaze, you also you know for those who don't know after the team there's the individual championships and you had two doubles teams play each other in the finals. Are there any generic doubles principles that you guys work on at UNC? Yeah. <laughs> Without, yeah. without, without sharing too much to the competitors. I don't know that like all the ACC women's coaches are listening to this, but like, is there anything generically speaking that you could share with the average listener? Well, ironically, Tyler, Tyler and I, it was Tyler's idea, but we came up with this little like a cheat sheet for our players. It's the must and the mustn'ts that we do in our doubles, things that we must do and things that we mustn't do. You know, he came up with it and um, there's kind of the principles of doubles and the golden rules of doubles. So there's certain things that we, we, again, we pride ourselves on, pride ourselves on being aggressive. We really worked really hard on, on serving to spots, being active at the net, returning at spots, being active off the return, you know, so, you know, a lot, not letting, you know, teams kind of, you know, reset when we're in control, balls out of the air, you know, kind of having that suffocation, you know, mentality, you know, we have, uh, what is it? Uh, 13, 13 must, mustn't on the list. So, uh, and the girls, you know, we, we talk about them all the time and it's, it's really, this year, it's been a really good mainstay for us. And I think it's really helped our doubles, uh, quite a bit this year. Is there a doubles drill that you guys do in practice that an amateur player out there listening could implement in their own practices that you think would help with their, with their games? 
the girls the girls love uh the drill that we call grandma's house uh it's a, you know it's over the 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 rule the, the the rhyme of grandma's house over the river through the woods grandma's house we go it's a two up two back drill where basically the back team's trying to make the ball bounce and the up team's trying to put the ball away without letting the ball bounce so you know the over the river through the woods type of thing is where the back team is working on dipping lobbing driving you got to have the net team's got to have great communication as far as who's going for what ball covering all the areas you know just you know movement together so that when we're playing really aggressive teams or we're trying to be aggressive you know i know it's two up two back and women's tennis is not always that way but our teams typically become aggressive and we get up so that's a that's a drill that you know even the amateur players can really work on and get better at as just the the coverage the working at the back team hitting different shots the dipping the lobbing staying up near the baseline taking the ball early those are things that our players um have done extremely well in doubles love that and and great name as well well done <laughs> on naming that drill um so we're going to finish up with some uh instagram questions the first one this person wanted to know what does a normal practice look like? Is it a lot of live ball? Is it dead ball? Is it sets? What What does a generic standard practice look like for you guys? Yeah, this year we actually have spent more time on serves and returns. You know, those are the things that we feel the serve plus one, the return plus one. Those are things that we've, uh, and we, in, in a typical practice, we probably spend probably 60 to 70% on doubles. I know doubles only worth one point, but we feel uh, if you work on doubles in practice, that's going to help your singles. If you work on singles in practice, it's not necessarily going to help your doubles. Um, and, and and doubles is, is so important. When you're playing when you're playing against a really good team, you're going to split the singles, and the doubles point is going to be the difference maker. So, um, our our uh, our typical practice is, you know, we do live ball, we do you know purposeful things, um, but you know, serves returns, doubles play. We rarely, uh, we rarely play a lot of single sets. We will never play matches. We've never played ma uh, full matches uh, in practice. Sometimes, you know, we'll play a full set. Maybe we'll play set and a half, but we rarely play full set, uh, full matches in practice. Next person wanted to know how much do you value a UTR when you're recruiting someone? It's a starting point. I mean, it's a, it's definitely a starting point. It's um it's it's um okay this person has a utr but it, you got to really do your homework you got to watch you got to go watch them in person you got to see you know what that utr is you know why it's good why it's bad or you know or, or whatever have you ever i'm still waiting to meet the person have you ever met someone who thinks their utr is too high <laughs> uh probably fiona because she never thinks she's very good. <laughs> she's probably the one that thinks that her UTR, and she probably doesn't know what her UTR is. So. <laughs> yeah, everyone, everyone's UTR yeah. is too low. Yeah. Every single player is better than yeah. UTR. I always, I always laugh at that one. For um, sure. Was there a specific moment uh, in your career, like growing up as a player, when you knew you wanted to become a coach? Not until, uh, not until my senior year in college, when. Um, I was the captain of the team and I, and I was being coached by Bobby Bayless. Um, and he was, he, he was in his second year coaching at Notre Dame and, uh, we never had an assistant position in the program history. And, and uh, I always joke about it, but I, um, my junior year, I helped recruit the number one player in the nation come to Notre Dame. Who's a good friend of mine from Pennsylvania, David DeLucia. And then my, my senior year, again, my coach, it was only his second year. He couldn't really trust anybody else to, 
to host recruits. So I hosted 67 recruits. Um, and of those 67 recruits, 11 of those guys ranked in the top 100 came to Notre Dame as freshmen. So that's when Bobby offered me the position. And I'm like, it didn't matter what it, what it paid. It, was, it actually only paid $8,000. So um, I just jumped at it because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just felt like I got cheated out of uh, four great years of college experience, you know, having only two great years with Bobby, He, I, you know, and I wanted to learn from him. So, it, you know, I became the very first assistant coach in Notre Dame history, and, and I got to hook coach those 11 guys as freshmen. So what was great for me was not feeling like, you know, I was coaching a lot of guys that knew me as a player. A lot of these guys just, you know, hey, they, they knew me as, as their, their first-year coach. So it was great. It was wonderful. And my, my third year of coaching with, with Bobby, we got to the NCAA Finals. So that was amazing. That's so cool. You've got, like we've mentioned several, several times, you have so many great players on the team. Is it difficult to manage, you know, like we said, only one person can play one and only six people can play. And I'm sure your number seven could play top of the lineup for many, many schools. How do you manage that aspect with the team, manage their egos and make sure everyone's happy and, and getting along well when the lineup is such a fixed thing every week? This was my most enjoyable year because I had incredible leadership from Sophia Patel, our captain, and a buy-in from everybody on the team. Like, you know, Elizabeth Scotty played two last year, and she didn't really care where she played. She played, you know, she played mostly five, okay? Abby Forrest played number one for UCLA for, you know, two or three years in a row, and she transfers in. She doesn't care where she plays, okay? She really didn't care. Riley played three last year. She didn't really care. So she played, you know, at six or seven. Annika had the best fall. And you know what? She didn't care. We told all seven of those girls, hey, you're going to play. You know, you're going to play. We're going to play everybody. And, you know, it's just going to be a rotation thing. And no, because this, again, I'm not kidding you. This was our most enjoyable year because we had no issues with, you know, lineup it questioning. We had no issues with kind of parents being upset with their, with their, their daughter, where, where she was playing. It was just amazing. I had not one issue from a player or a parent this year based on lineup and, and, and even our players, they didn't, they didn't question it. They bought into it. And it was just, it was about how can we get better? How can we improve throughout the year? And the end of the year was just, um, you know, obviously it's nice to, to see the leadership that Sophia brought the buy-in from all the players on the team. And it's nice to see, um, you know, it, them rewarded with the national title. And that's why, and if you, you follow us that closely, but that's why, uh, for senior day, we made a decision, you know, as you mentioned, it's difficult to put out, you know, players because everybody in our team, Sarah McClure, Lindsay Zink, other players, you know, they don't always get the line, but everybody in our team has contributed to our, the success of our program. So we made a decision, you know, like our basketball team has, has a tradition, you know, from Dean Smith to Roy Williams, their tradition was they always play the seniors for the first few minutes. And we made a decision to play Sophia Patel with her best friend, Elizabeth Scotty, okay, at three doubles against Duke. And if we lose this team match, we we tie for the regular season with Duke, okay? So it was a huge match for us. But we made a decision that the person over the player is more important. And we ended up winning the doubles point um, and putting different combinations, two different combinations out there. And Abby, who did not, who's normally in the doubles, she was, you know, she was replaced. She didn't play, but she she cheered like crazy and support of her team was remarkable. Yeah, I mean, that's the hard thing. I don't think people understand. There's a couple other sports that are similar, but it's not like basketball where you can put in a player for five minutes and then put someone else in. It's not like, 
in tennis, you have a starter and a person who's on the bench. You cannot sub anyone in. And so when you make that decision between six and seven or who's the last person in doubles, they don't get like 51% and 49% playing time. It's 100% and zero. And so that is very rare. That's cool to hear that your girls were kind of all in with each other and supporting each other. Because I know in my 12 years in college, that was that's very, very rare. Well, that would be my that would, that would be my rule change. I would like one substitution in doubles and one substitution in singles. And they can they can come in at any time. You can bring anybody in. And obviously, you know, just like baseball, they can't come back. You know, if you take somebody out, that that would that would keep everybody on their toes. Uh, if they have a bad attitude, you pull them. Yeah, but this year, you know, I could say that everybody we played gave one hundred percent that they had that day in every single match, and it's it was amazing. Uh, I might make this two questions, but what would your best advice be for the four O singles player? Four O singles player, I would um, hmm, singles, not doubles. Well, that might be my part two. Okay. Sing- by the way, your li- your list of must and mustn'ts that you waved in front of the camera at me like has okay. me so intrigued. So I might ask <laughs> you for one doubles, but okay. but I do want one, one one singles piece of advice for the four O player. I'm about being, you know, I call it sap. Okay. SAP is steady, accurate, powerful, okay, in that order. I'd want, I want a player to be absolutely steady without, okay, and to the point where I can hit every single shot, forehand, backhand, serve steady, volley steady, overhead steady, and just train, 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 okay? And then to get to the 4-5 level, let's be accurate to all around parts of the court without losing the steadiness. And then to get above a 4-5 level, let me add power without losing accuracy, without losing the steadiness. Okay, to to maybe get my level. So to me, a four old player, I want to make sure that every part of my game is steady. Okay, from you know, my serve high percentage, my return percentage, you know, my forehand, my backhand, work on depth, try and be steady. You know, because te- you know, depth is the most important thing. That's the diamond of all. So to me, I would I would really want a four old player to be steady and focus on that part of their game. I'm gonna guess most four old players have those letters reversed. Which it doesn't sound as good as SAP. That'd be Pat P A S. It'd be Pat. It'd be Pat. Yeah, they're, they're 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 all about power. Okay, and I I am gonna get. It doesn't have to necessarily be on your list of must. You don't have to give up the state secrets, but give me one piece of doubles advice for a four O level player. Don't don't let the point reset. Okay, when you hit an offensive shot, okay, or your your partner hits an offensive shot. My biggest thing is is nobody likes to be shorter in their height everybody likes to be taller correct right to an extent yes would yep. you rather be shorter well uh, when i'm on the middle seat of an airplane there are times where i've okay. contemplated that generally speaking I, ath- I don't mind a, being tall <laughs> as an athlete you want to be taller okay correct 100 so correct so, 100%. It, so in doubles if you're at the net you want to hit the ball at its highest point if you can get an overhead hit an overhead if you're hitting a volley hit the volley above net level don't let the ball drop below net level don't be smaller or shorter okay when you can get to me though those players they hesitate they turn their they, they turn their body okay they 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 become a, a waiter or a waitress okay and the ball drops okay try and be as tall as you possibly can on every shot even at the baseline go get the ball okay don't let the ball drop get comfortable being uncomfortable being aggressive taking the ball on the rise i want to see if there's like a Reddit thread that comes out of this where people are debating if that was a must or a mustn't. Where, where, where he found that's that a, one. Is, uh, that's a must. 
that's a must. Do not let the point reset. Go get the ball. That is so good. Brian, thanks for joining today. Obviously, you know, this was a long time coming for you guys. You've been so steady. Like you said, I didn't know you had always been ranked in the top four. That's that's honestly probably a more incredible accomplishment than just winning an NCAA title. But congrats on the success and hopefully good luck next year as well. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate having me. All right. I want to thank Brian for spending time with us today. Loved his comments on playing without fear and folding the doubles alleys in and folding up the net on big points to add margin. And I'm still mad that I didn't take a screenshot of his list of musts and mustn'ts. But my favorite thing today was his description of a SAP or an SAP player. I know everybody loves power and it's fun, but I love his advice to first work on being steady and making the ball, then work on your accuracy, and then you can finally add power to your game. Focus on those things in that order, and I think you're going to see your level improve quickly. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved in tennis without even hitting a ball.